night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. We're looking forward to a great one tonight as we bring back our guest, George Case. I think it was about two years ago that George was here. We were talking about his book, um... Here's to My Sweet Satan was the name of it. I had to look because uh, I always want to say hail. It's not hail. It's here's to My Sweet Satan. And it was about the occult and rock and roll. I remember it being a very, very interesting discussion. But George uh, has several other books about other topics as well. He's written a lot about rock and roll and pop culture, which I have to be honest, um, I could spend all night talking about that particular topic or the variations of that topic. Um, but we're going to talk about a couple of different things tonight. One of the things is he's written an essay about the lasting effects of, of the pandemic, and it's not what you think it is. That's what I find very interesting about George's uh, perspective here. So we're going to talk about that essay and his ideas as it relates to them. We're also going to talk about Stanley Kubrick, one of the most enigmatic directors and filmmakers of our time. Uh, directed such unbelievable films such as uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, The Shining, um, a Clockwork Orange. There's so many. I think, uh, what was the Tom Cruise one that was uh, Eyes Wide Shut, right? That was one of his. Um, but there's the, the films are amazing unto themselves. But in addition to that, there's controversy and conspiracy related to some of Kubrick's work and Kubrick himself. And we'll be talking about that perspective uh, with George Case tonight. And then I think finally, um, what was the other thing? There was something else we were going to chat about too. Well, we'll surprise you when we get to that point. Either way, it's going to be a great conversation, and I'm glad George has agreed to come back and be on the program with us tonight. Before we get into much else, though, I do want to just take a second and wish my father a happy birthday today. Now, my father left us in 2014, and um, he's very sorely missed. It's hard to believe it was seven years ago, but um, uh, it's his birthday, and I have to thank my dad for introducing me to a love of music that has guided my life. He taught me how to play guitar, which has been a highlight of my life. He taught me a love for electronics and computers and tinkering, which is still a passion of mine. And he also taught me to do whatever the heck I want and not give a shit about what anybody else thinks. <laughs> and I have to thank him for that, too, because that has been a really, really valuable skill all of my life. So uh, happy birthday, Dad. Wherever you are, I hope you're enjoying yourself. You know that whole song, uh, if there's a rock and roll heaven, uh, right? Rock and roll. I hope you're there. If, if for no other reason, then you get to enjoy all those amazing performances. Anyway, um, be sure to subscribe to our channels on YouTube and Twitch. Of course, Twitch is um, a little bit different. There's no archive of programs there, but there are live streams there of the show. And when you're on Twitch, you can follow for no charge. But if you end up subscribing, uh, there is a fee unless you use it and link it to your Amazon Prime account. If you link it to Amazon Prime, there's no additional fee, but you just have to renew that every month. So remember to do that. On YouTube, there's no fee to subscribe. Both channels can be found by searching just my name, J.V. Johnson. Very, very, very simple to find. Uh, all right, let's go to break. Let's get our uh, good friend George Case 
on the line here. We'll begin talking about all these topics. We have a lot to cover with George, and I'm looking forward to it. It's Beyond Reality, and we'll be right back. Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter, and we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app. And it's only 99 cents a month. It's less than a buck. You probably have that change in your couch right now. That dollar a month, less than a dollar, goes a long way in helping us produce this program, provide great interviews for you during the course of the week. I thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm your host, GV. Thank you to everybody for joining us. If you're a podcast listener, listener, thank you to you as well. I know that you don't have the opportunity necessarily to join us on the live program because of the hour, but the podcast version is just as happy to be uh, presented to you. And we are getting downloaded something around, I don't know, it's like 10,000 times a day. So thank you to all of our podcast listeners. It's a very, very convenient way. Uh, for people to listen to the program if they can't catch the live version. We're excited tonight. We've got a returning guest, a good friend, George Case. He's a writer. He's the author of several books on music and pop culture. We've talked about some of those on the program before. He also has weekly essays that he posts at his personal blog, which you can find at georgecaseblog.wordpress.com. George, welcome back to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you here tonight. Very good to hear from you. So let's talk about what's been going on the last couple of years. I think it's been about two since you've been here, and the world is a very, very different place than it was two years ago. Oh, my God, yeah. I think uh, we are living through historic times. It's, uh, the, I think it may be for our generation, what I've said in my writing and just in conversation with a lot of other people, it just seems to be this generation's equivalent of... Uh, World War II, I don't think we've seen a society that's been mobilized against a single enemy this much since those times against uh, the 1940s. Now, there was the Cold War, there was Vietnam, there was 9-11. We've lived through a lot of history just in in my life in the last 30, 40, 50 years. But uh, to see so many places in the world, I'm up in Canada, you're in the U.S., Europe, uh, Asia, Far East, Africa, South America, mobilized and shaped by this common condition. I think that is something kind of unprecedented uh, in my lifetime, I can say. I think you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, I I was alive during the tail end of of Vietnam, obviously alive during the Gulf War, during uh, 9-11. And, you know, we've had uh, hot spots and trouble spots in the world in uh, in all of my lifetime. It seems like every time you turn around, there's something. There's a flashpoint somewhere. But I think with the exception of World War II, this... This, what we're going through now, probably affects more people more directly and will have longer consequences than any of those things that I just named. Maybe, I mean, maybe you can put Vietnam on a, on a, on a, 
on a on a different plane. I'm not sure, but I I don't think Vietnam affected as many people as this uh, worldwide pandemic has been affecting. Right. I mean, I think in terms of the casualties, we're probably lucky that it hasn't been like World War II in terms of sheer numbers. And I guess the closest comparison really is to the Spanish flu of just over 100 years ago. I mean, that's basically what we're living through. It's a, sim- it's a health emergency. It's not a war. It's not an invasion from aliens. It's a global health emergency. But the extent to which it's got people not only locked down and kept in their house, but the, the extent to which it's got governments working against a common problem and having the entire population sort of lined up or mobilized and encouraged to live and act a certain way. The, the amount of resources that have gone into bailing out individual citizens, workers, businesses, the amount of government resources that have gone into health care and procuring the vaccines, that, that is something unprecedented. It's like the Manhattan Project of the 1940s, the race to build an atomic bomb, and now we're getting the same way with uh, the vaccine and the rollout of the uh, taking care of all the the, the ill people, the senior citizens. It's something we haven't seen. And as you say, I think economically, uh, politically, socially, it's the repercussions are going to be huge for some time. We're going to be talking about it years after we're, we're finally finished. We're going to be looking back and thinking, well, how did this happen? What did we do right? And maybe just as importantly, what, what did we do wrong? In the same way we look back at World War II, good thing that we won World War II. The good guys definitely won, but we may think, how did we? How did it get so far that we had to have such a war? Yeah, that's that is an excellent point, and we'll be looking at this particular circumstance with that type of uh, hindsight as well. How did we? How did it get to that point? Is there anything we could have done in the beginning uh, to have prevented it? Um, and you know, Monday morning quarter, quarterbacking is uh, is is not always healthy, but in some cases, the analysis that can come from that can lead to uh, prevention of similar circumstances down the road. Do you think? And I know you've written about you know some conspiracy stuff in some of your essays, and obviously, we're going to talk about Stanley Kubrick tonight there's conspiracy theories associated with him um but my my question and if you don't have a, uh, an opinion on this that's fine too but a lot of people are concerned with the speed at which the vaccine for covid was developed and you know i don't think most sane people don't don't dispute the data but i guess some people would say how do we know the long-term effects of this vaccine um, when we haven't had any long-term studies, it was developed and, and, and injected in people's arms all within a year. Um, do you have any concerns about anything like that? Not. My concern is more that we're, whether or not they're really effective, mm-hmm. whether or not they're they're necessary. Whether again, I don't. I have no claims to be a medical expert. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an immunologist. So. To, to a large extent, I do trust that the authorities, uh, and I, again, this is governments all over the world, it's not just one single government, I do trust that there's a, a basic pool of resources and, and better minds than mine trying to work on this and who have determined that this is the thing to do. But as with any kind of uh, immunization or inoculation, there may be side effects, there may be, it may just not even work that well. So we're always coming up against new types of diseases. That's just the nature of bacteria and how these things evolve. So there's always going to be some new uh, virus or some new health concern that can affect people and that can kill people 
that medicine just has not got on top of. So it's my concern with immunization is less that there's some sort of agenda behind it or something that we're not being told. It's more that is this really going to work and is there going to be something else coming down the road that's going to be just as deadly and which this vaccination won't be able to contain. So I'm not sure about whether we can trust any kind of technology all the way through the rest of our lives, whether or not this is really the solution to anything and we'll go back to our pre-pandemic life really soon. I think this may be some kind of condition that we may have to be living with indefinitely. There's going to be a constant sort of a cold war against the the viruses right now, the same way we had a World War II followed by a cold war against another political enemy. Maybe we'll have a cold war against another health enemy. That remains to be seen. But as far as, you know, do I trust the people who are making the vaccines? Do I think there's something else in there? Sure, I think people are generally doing their best in a problem against an unprecedented problem. But whether all these people's best is the best we need or the best that we can do, that remains to be seen. Uh, you're right. Time will tell. I'll answer a lot of these questions, and hopefully, hopefully, they answer them in a way that we all can be happy and, and live with. Um, because yeah. it, it was a, a miracle of science to have this vaccine develop so quickly, and it seems to be based on the numbers that are being presented, very, very effective. Um, so I applaud uh, the companies that put their uh, researchers to work on this, and uh, you know, and, and the federal government for for kind of uh, uh, providing its support and getting regulations out of the way to make it happen. Because this could be the miracle we're looking for and i think we all have our fingers crossed that it is sure yeah i mean it's coming out in canada people are getting vaccinated i know it's throughout the states and throughout other countries too it's it's people are are putting it to use and it seems to be the initial studies seem to say that it may be effective so maybe this will get us back on back to normality maybe this is the the weapon the the battle we're we're need to win. Maybe this is the the end of the war, but again, history will show just how effective it was or wasn't. George, do you even know what normal is anymore? I don't. I'm not even sure. <laughs> Good question. I'm not even yeah, sure. I, 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 I'm not sure whether or not even by the end of this year or later this summer, we'll, we'll think this is something we can forget. I think we're going to be living with the consequences of it a long time, if not necessarily in the realm of health, but certainly in terms of uh, media, in terms of politics, in terms of education and work, like the idea of people working from home more and more, um, long-distance travel, do people want to get on airplanes? Uh, do kids want to be in school? How are university students going to be educated? Are they going to go to classrooms? All these things are still up in the air right now, so whether we we're simply on a pause button, and then once the vaccines have been distributed, we can hit that and sort of resume everything that we were living in 2019. I don't know if that's going to come back. We're going to talk a lot about a lot of different aspects of your work tonight, um, but I kind of, want, kind of want to get an overview here. Um, your books kind of speak for themselves. The titles basically tell you what the books are about. But tell us a little bit about the blog. What type of topics do you like to write about on your blog? Well, the blog is kind of a platform for all of my other books, which, and it does cover things like, uh, there's book reviews, there's music reviews, there's little opinion pieces. I kind of think that what you would find on my blog is something you might find in a newspaper or a magazine, just 
short essay takes five minutes to read about something that's going on that's current. Sometimes I just write a sort of humor piece or a you know, reflection piece, something about from my life. A lot of times it's a consideration about uh, some of my favorite type of music. I'm an old classic rocker, and I've written books about Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and that era of music, the Beatles. Uh, sometimes it's about politics. I have a whole category of stuff about culture and about film. I've written about Stanley Kubrick, so I've reviewed some of his movies or his influence. But it's uh, I, the subtitle of the blog is Essays and Ideas, so I'm kind of open to all kinds of things that... Uh, maybe provoke people or just the, my own take on what's going on in the world and hopefully without being inflammatory or overly partisan or it's not there to stir people up and get people angry it's to get people thinking it seems like it takes very little to get people stirred up and angry these days <laughs> this absolutely one word put in a place that you know might seem in, uh, inappropriate for somebody else it just people get all riled up it's really amazing how thin our skin has gotten um but i guess that's just part of the times we're living in um i want to yeah. talk i want to kind of start uh, a conversation here talking about one of your books and this is one that uh, was published about 10 years ago uh it's called dumbing down descent tell me what that book's about that's a collection of pieces on politics and culture. And what I was looking at with that book was sort of the, the way protest has turned, to me, overly simplistic. The subtitle I, I've got or the tagline I've used is, How Has Critical Thinking Become So Thoughtless? So I do take on things like conspiracy theories. I take on things like uh, people's criticism of the media. Uh, as a Canadian writer, I take on something that's very common up here in Canada is a kind of reflexive criticism of the United States. So I was trying to get into all these things, and again, without taking aside either left or right, it's more about serious versus shallow. Like if we're going to have a political conversation and serious political debates, let's at least set a, a reasonable sort of constructive framework that we can talk about things in so that we're not falling back on all these kind of cliches and and you know shallow thinking about what the problem is and what the solution is because it seems to me that well as you say people do have thin skins people are very partisan people are certainly very polarized in Canada and the US and other parts of the world so let's at least try to restore some kind of semblance of, of civility and constructiveness to our political debates. We can still disagree on stuff, but let's not fall back on on just simplistic thinking. So that's what dumbing down dissent is. Absolutely, we need dissent, but let's keep it smart and let's keep it uh, thoughtful. And, and I knew the answer to that question before I asked it, but I wanted you to explain it as you just did so that I can ask this follow-up question. In the, in the 10 years since you published that particular book, based on the things that you just outlined, media, um, uh, political discourse, all of these things, what kind of changes have you seen over these 10 years? I think it certainly has gotten more polarized. I think um, people are more inclined to to look at their their ideological opponents almost as personal enemies. We don't seem to have a lot of common ground anymore. We certainly don't seem to have a lot of common facts. People are, tend to be very siloed in their own uh, media world, so they get only the information that agrees with what they already like. And that's certainly a function of social media. I think that we 
tend to get a lot of feeds that just kind of reinforce the convictions we already have, whether from left or right. So there's not a lot of what what people call reaching across the aisle just among regular citizens where a Democrat and Republican sit, can sit down and, and talk and find some sort of common ground or in Canada, a liberal and a conservative, there's kind of, it, it's almost become a, a lifestyle thing where your politics is so connected to your personality and to your, your, your social situation that there's just no way you could even consider what the other side has to say. So that polarization, I think, has become pretty much worse. And I think there's, there's less trust in the, the democratic process of people voting and our legislators kind of hashing things out and coming to a compromise that's for something that can benefit everyone. People are, there's a lot of rhetoric about we've got to take back our country as if the other people who we live, who live in it with us aren't entitled to have it. And that's bad for democracy if we've got people thinking that all those other citizens we share the land with aren't really, don't really deserve to have it. So I think that's been pretty unhealthy. And the invoking dissent to say that, you know, I'm against X and I'm, I'm standing up to this big monolith of, of power, whoever it is, whether it's left or right, uh, that, that doesn't leave much room for engagement with the other side and, and constructive debate and, you know, let's get together and sort this out and maybe come to some sort of common terms. There's, there's, a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of posturing and a lot of hostility between people. And I think we've seen it, I mean, the States is kind of a bellwether for the rest of the world in that there's, I think, a legitimate concern that there's the social divides may even lead to to violence, to real political divides that just can't be uh, can't be bridged anymore. So there's, I don't think it's got better. I'll put it that way. Uh, you you summed it up so very eloquently, and you really kind of uh, um, painted a picture that I think a lot of us are seeing and a lot of us are frustrated with. And I'm going to nail down a little deeper here. Um, in 2000. 10, 11, uh, you know, when you were writing and getting the book published, um, we already saw some carnage in the media landscape from the effects of the Internet. In 2021, that carnage now looks like a nuclear wasteland. There are virtually no newspapers left. There are just a few, a handful. Um, Mm -hmm. I I owned radio stations for a lot of years, so I'm very familiar with the radio business, and that business Mm -hmm. has been decimated. Um, You know, radio stations are still on the air, but they don't have news departments. They very rarely have actually live talent in the studio uh, providing whatever format they're, they're providing. Um, and the same thing with television stations. And I'm not talking about cable, but I'm talking about independent television stations. They just do not thrive anymore. So the wasteland has turned it has turned or the, the devastation has turned into a complete nuclear wasteland of the media. How is that affecting all of this? Well, like I say, if we're getting our news or our ideas or what we think of as news from a social media feed where people are just putting up a blog or any kind of site that doesn't have actual on-the-ground reporters, like you mentioned, there's no actual, and and the ones that are out there, no one trusts or people only trust the ones that convey something that already corresponds with what they believe. Um, the, the idea of objective facts and expert authority, and this is something I've got into some of my other books too, uh, but the idea that there's some independent, objective, 
trustworthy source that everyone can kind of agree on, even if we disagree on consequences or the impact of that news. The fact that we don't even agree on what, what is news anymore, yeah. I think, is, is really problematic for a society where everyone is just siloed in their own bubble and only getting the information that corresponds with their, their pre-existing prejudices. That's, that's really harmful. And of course, the social media itself tends to reinforce or sort of amplify the prejudices you already have, so that even the most fringe elements, something that would just never really be considered 20 or 30 years ago, can attract an audience and drag people into the rabbit hole simply by just sort of serving as clickbait and getting people interested and intrigued and often just getting them angry without offering any real analysis or real facts on the ground. It's just stirring people up. And that, again, that goes across the board from left to right. It's, I think all sides are pretty guilty of it. But now we're just seeing people living in, it is an information landscape, but in terms of objective truth or serious reporting or substantial data that we can all agree on, yeah, it's a wasteland. It really is. And then you add one more layer to that, and this is something that I think is going to come to a head, if not this year, in the next couple of years. And it's the dominance. Uh, you know, you, may, you keep mentioning social media, which is obviously an amaz- a powerful force in this whole discussion. Um, Google isn't necessarily social media, but it is a conduit of information, and they control a hell of a lot of information that flows to people Um in fact, you know, the name of the company, Google, has become, you know, an accepted word in the English language to, to mean that you're looking up information. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and then you've got, you know, Facebook, which I don't necessarily put quite in the same ballpark as Google. Google owns YouTube. You've got a few companies here that are really um, have a stranglehold on the flow of information. And when they decide that certain information shouldn't be seen, you don't see it. And... I don't know, you know, I'm not sure how to digest this. Have you given any thought to this dilemma, and should we be concerned about it? Yeah, well, I I do think a lot of people have raised those concerns about Google and Facebook and Twitter, that these are becoming the the tech giants, almost like the robber barons of uh, the train era. Like, these people control so much that these are big trusts that need to be busted. Uh, That's been discussed in Europe and Canada and other parts of the world, like, are these companies just too big, are they too powerful, and should they be broken up And for everyone's benefit? In the same way that any large company is just, if it becomes too dominant, can control the market for, for anything, whether it's trains or travel or any other product, and now it is information. Um, you know, I'm not sure that, that we owe it or we can expect all these media companies that they're the ones who should be uh, giving out information, and we have to see that they're giving out or letting us access the right information. I've always said, and this is something I do say in Dumbing Down Dissent, is that it's the responsibility of the citizen to look stuff up. Like, it's not necessarily hidden or kept from us. If you want to find out something, you can go to a good public library. There's a lot of good places to, to make yourself informed about any particular subject. If you're just getting it, if you were ever getting it from a soundbite on the TV news, if you were getting it from the front page of your local paper when we had them, and now if you're getting it just by clicking on a Google or a Facebook link, you know, you're not getting a, a very informed picture of the situation and you're not being a really informed citizen. So I think 
we owe it all to ourselves to take the responsibility to find stuff out on our own instead of just letting it come to us and trusting whatever source we have. We have to do a little bit of the digging ourselves. So it's not just, it's not all on the media itself, whether it's TV networks or radio or now the internet and the big tech giants that we have today. It's, it's up to us. The power is still with us as citizens and consumers of news to go out and look up stuff rather than just let it come to us through a, a curated feed that we assume is going to give us all the facts. But you do have to dig a little to find out stuff and become an educated and informed citizen. I think that's a great point. Um, however, I'll add this one caveat to that idea. Um, again, going back to what I said about the media landscape, you know, uh, 30 years ago, um, just to give you an example, in my little town, uh, I grew up in a town called Oneonta, New York, uh, about 15,000 people. There were three newspapers. There were two competing radio stations that both had full-time news staffs. Um, there was no TV station because the town was just too small. However, but that even just that little town, there were five separate news sources that I could go to to get varying opinions about whatever the story of the day was. And, and in those cases, it most likely was local or regional news that I was looking for or my parents' were because I was probably too young. But either way, the point is there are a lot of choices, but all of those choices are gone in the town that I grew up in. They're all gone. Um, so you don't have those options anymore. And you multiply that across the entire United States and then across the entire world. Um, so these companies that are now dominating the information flow are also the same companies that put all of the competing ideas and the competing information um, out of business, with the exception of few. There are still some out there. But those numbers have dwindled to a point where there aren't many dissenting opinions. And a lot of the media that still exists is owned by corporate conglomerates that all present the same message. So you're not getting varying opinions, despite the fact you might go to CNN or you might go to MSNBC or you might go to ABC or whatever it happens to be. You know, they're all, many of them are owned by the same people, so it's the same message. So I guess that is the bigger fear to me is that these guys came in, they dropped the nuclear bomb on the, on the landscape, they control everything, and democracy can't function without information. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, absolutely. We need to have, for democracy, yeah, we need to have informed citizens and we need to have trusted source of information. But the paradox is that the government can't sort of mandate that. Absolutely Nobody right. can mandate That's that right. and say, here's the information, here's the sources that you need, and that's all. So I, I hear you about the, the the shrinking media landscape and the loss of local local journalism for sure. But I would always, even before all that happened, I would have said that for anyone to who wants to find out what's going on, we we owe it to ourselves to get an education, like learn about elementary civics, learn about how your government works, learn about the world, so you can at least whatever comes to you, whether it's through the old sources of the legacy media, like the TV and radio stations of yesteryear or now, through Google and Wikipedia and Facebook, at least have some background so that you know, you have a sense of of what you can trust, what's authoritative, what's reliable, and what other alternate sources may be out there. Because I don't think, the problem isn't that things are being censored so much, the problem is we've got a glut of information. It's like the metaphor people always use is you're trying to drink from a fire hose. You're not going to get a, you know, a healthy glass of water putting your face to a fire hose. You have right. to learn to sort of curate and, and select and, and judge the sources you do get. And that involves a little bit of effort on 
your part as a citizen, on my part as a citizen, to to know what's out there and, and get a bit of a grounding. Because I don't think anything's really being held from us or prevented, but it's a, a matter of knowing what to trust and what to look for, what is how to think, basically. Excellent points. Um, so all of this kind of introduction and bringing up your book from uh, 10 years ago uh, is was my way to kind of lead us to this next topic, and that's something you wrote more recently, uh, which is an essay called Get Up, Stand Up. And it discusses mm-hmm. discusses the w- lasting um, effects of the global pandemic. But, you know, most people would automatically assume, well, yeah, lasting effects. There are economic effects, lasting effects. There are health effects. But you took a completely different approach on this, and I really like what you you said and how you wrote about this. Tell us what um, that particular essay is talking about. Well, yeah, the point of the essay was that it seems to me, and I, we go back to that comparison to uh, World War II, which it seems to me that was the last time in history, and that was basically our grandparents' age, where people were sort of encouraged to support a single cause and everyone get on the team and let's fight the common enemy, and we're all united at for a single purpose. But ever since World War II, for the last, all through the 50s, certainly the 60s and the 70s, and you know, really right up to very recently, the common message we were getting from our media and from our films and our classic literature and from so many sources was the, the idealization of rebellion, of dissent, of being the lone holdout. And that could be anyone from you know, Nelson Mandela to uh, Winston Smith in 1984, from uh, number six in The Prisoner to Hawkeye Pierce on MASH. We've always been kind of idealizing that lone rebel voice. But suddenly with the pandemic, the message we're getting from so many sources is, no, everyone get in line, wear your masks, socially distance, stay at home, stay in the bubble. So it's a real kind of 180 degrees from... So many of the the stories, the encouragement we've we've been grown up with, and I'm just it seemed to me when I was writing the essay, I thought, well, this is kind of a real reversal, and it's hard. Maybe young people today, people who are in their teens, can kind of get on board a lot quicker because it's it's newer to them, and they're more willing to accept all these restrictions: the quarantine, the lockdown, the working from home, or schooling from home, walking the proper way down the grocery aisle. But for people who are a bit older and who have lived through, you know, the 60s, the 70s, where so many of the messages was about protest and push back and, and get up, stand up, and don't give up the fight, there's kind of a, a disconnect between the what we're hearing now from our authorities and and our governments telling us to, to trust and obey and, and conform versus all those other messages that said nonconformity is is the good thing and you don't want to be a conformist. So it's been it's been a real adjustment culturally I think for all of us to to feel that we suddenly have to obey the rules after generations of being told that rules were meant to be broken. You know, it's interesting when I was reading the piece um you do an amazing job of kind of tiptoeing up to a, what would I guess I would call a political line, you know, left or right. And you get to the line and then you kind of go to the other line, <laughs> you go to the other way and you get to that line and you kind of come back. So I found it a very balanced, art, a very balanced piece, which was refreshing. Um, you know, you mentioned teenagers being a little bit more willing to accept these kind of restrictions. And I think there's a, there's something uh, at play there that we don't often think about. Um, kids are 
being taught differently in school when they go to school. A lot mm-hmm. of kids aren't going to school right now, but when they were, they're being taught very differently. And one of the, you know, this, these, I guess, conformist messages that they're getting are kind of like do your part messages. And, and those do you part messages come up in things like, you know, the climate change discussion. And I don't want to get into mm-hmm. climate change itself, but, you know, there's a lot of this. The kids are hearing a lot of this. And in some cases, you know, some of this social engineering, some of these things that we're hearing now that, um, um, in, in many ways are disturbing, uh, that are social issues that are now being incorporated into school uh, curricula. Um, those are also kind of, I guess I would say, you know, march in line, do it this way because this is the right way, as opposed to those individualistic ideas that may have been accepted and may, I don't know about taught, but certainly accepted previously. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I have kids in school myself. I'm a, I'm a parent. And I'm, I see them coming home with the lessons that they're receiving. And, you know, every generation looks back on what their kids are learning and thinks maybe find something to critique there. Right. But definitely there is a sense that, that things that maybe for older people, people in their 40s and 50s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, might have thought were questionable, where there was room for debate, uh, now have become strictly black and white. And and by comparison, things that we thought were sort of absolute, either right or wrong, one way or the other, are now for younger generations are kind of gray areas where there's a lot more um, ambiguity about what is the right thing. So, and that's that's probably been going on forever. But it is true that today's generation are, are learning a certain amount of, it seems to me, a, a certain amount of kind of lockstep rigidity that this is the way it is, and if you question it, you're you're a bad person. I mean, we can get into the whole cancel culture debate, which has now become so so common that people are talking about that. You know, if you have a one dissenting or deviant opinion, you're absolutely shunned and yeah. locked out of your social media. That's something that hasn't happened to me, so I don't want to overstate the problem. But it's it's certainly an issue that people are talking about that that freedom of thought and freedom of expression is now more of a a complicated subject and it it is something that people have raised a few red flags about like we do need to have uh, you know a free market of ideas out there and if that market gets constrained or people are clamping down on what can be said what can be expressed what can be what can be thought in the name of some higher cause then it isn't democracy it's not healthy and it's certainly not um, what we think of as sort of small L liberal discourse. I don't mean liberal politically, but just liberal meaning free. Uh, Some of that has been, I think, a little bit constrained and maybe somewhere in today's generations of the young generations, there may be a a few dissenting voices coming out of that. But right now, it does seem like the news we're getting, the stories we're hearing is about uh, ideological conformity more than... Uh, free exchange of ideas. That's happening in you know, high schools, elementary schools, certainly on university campuses where a lot of the controversies are coming from. 
You know, I, I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed in the list of examples of individuals uh, showing individuality and and maybe a little bit of rebellious nature. And you included Hawkeye Pierce there from MASH. Uh, somebody you included in the article, which you didn't include in the list you just gave, is Miles Burnell, Dr. Miles Burnell, from the movie oh, yeah. uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is one of my all-time favorites, the 1957 version. Uh, not the I like the later one, too, with Donald Sutherland, but that 1957 oh, yeah. version... One of my favorite all-time movies. When I saw you listed that in there, I thought, oh, yeah, 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 this is excellent. Yeah, because, I mean, if you remember in the film, like, he's the one guy who sees that there's a problem and that all his his neighbors are sort of being replaced by these these pod people, and he's the one voice who's, and everyone thinks, you know, are you crazy? And he's, of course, he's the hero of the film, the one dissenter, the one rebel against this mass alien invasions, and he's, the guy we want to identify with as the audience. We want to think that if everyone was suddenly changing or turning into a certain type of lockstep conformity, we'd be the one guy who would notice it and and hold out and, and break free from it. But I'm not sure if there's a Miles Bunnell existing right today. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, the, and as you as you're telling this, and and I, I don't know why it didn't dawn on me before that film is also is all, uh, frequently talked about as being a social commentary on communism. Um, however, we could really apply some of those ideas and those lessons to some of these things we're seeing today. I mean, it's very very ominous when you start thinking about it in those terms. Sure, I mean, at the time, and when it was made in the '50s, it was sort of a metaphor for the anti, where whether it was communist invasion or even like the the McCarthyism right. that if everyone was suddenly down on you know thinking one way about trusting your neighbors and he was the one sort of holdout like there was a commentary there or a metaphor against that the red scare so he was that one sort of liberal dissenter small l liberal the free thinker of the time but of course you could use all kinds of different metaphors in the years that have happened since, whatever views that are becoming so prevalent that everyone is expected to agree on and get behind. And if there's one guy who's, whose body hasn't been snatched, who's, who's you know, resisted the, the alien invasion, he's going to be that, he or she will be that Miles Bunnell figure, the one person who sees how everyone else has been changed and has been sort of, you know, bullied or, 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 or moved, persuaded into some sort of lockstep mindlessness, and if, if he's the one who can see it and the only guy, that person will be sort of the, the anti-hero or the rebel of our own time. But you could use all kinds of political or social uh, metaphors now, I think, to make, to make the same story, but it would be commenting on uh, a different set of circumstances. You know, again, going drawing on your experience in exploring and discussing and writing about some conspiracy theories and ideas, um, another thing that is becoming a little bit concerning to people is that the uh, resp- government response to COVID, these lockdowns, these very, very strict lockdowns in some places, um, may be a precursor. And I just saw a headline of an article today that even indicates that uh, this might be true or it might have some uh, implications, but maybe a precursor to uh, the use of similar tactics in the fight against, and I, I put fight in quotes, um, climate change or some of these other issues that are being floated as, you know, pandemic type problems. Um, 
Does any of that scare you, concern you, or do you think it's all hogwash? I wouldn't say it's hogwash. I mean, the one thing that uh, is more immediately likely, I think, that people have talked about is uh, uh, or vaccination passports, where in order to travel or even within your own country, you'll have to show uh, that you've been vaccinated against COVID, which has raised among civil libertarians. People have started talking about, you know, how much of our health information should be made public and how much access to... uh, to our personal information should be given to the state to let us to allow us to do stuff. I'm not sure if I, I don't know if we can have a, a complete ideological sort of quarantine in the same way we're having it now with the health care, so that you you absolutely cannot do X in the name of cl- fighting climate change or in the name of social justice. I, I think the the underlying tradition of civil liberties and free speech in democracies like ours is probably a bit too strong, so I don't think the government could quite take over that much and dictate exactly how we live for something that wasn't a, a health emergency, because at least with COVID, we can understand that it does directly kill people. It's a virus. It's a identifiable medical condition, whereas ideas are a lot harder to regulate. But, yeah, something like a vaccination passport and some other type of security issues, I think we could at least foresee. I mean, we've been living in a kind of national security state even since 9-11. When you think about going through airport checkouts and getting across the border between Canada and the U.S., I mean, that's so different, and that's been different for 20 years because of the amount of surveillance that we've had everywhere, cameras everywhere, Um, and that that precedes the, the pandemic that we're living through now, but the idea of our liberties being restricted in the name of some sort of higher cause, whether it's security or fighting terrorism, fighting the pandemic, fighting global warming. Yeah, those are legitimate issues, and I wouldn't be surprised if people still raise red flags in the coming years about you know, how much are we willing to give up of our privacy and of our, our freedom in the name of some idealized security. Yeah, and just let me just mention the article that I that I saw. The, the headline is uh, Mark Morano: Lockdowns are essentially a model for Green New Deal's planned recession. In case anybody was interested in that, um, let's change the topic. Let's talk about uh, Stanley Kubrick because uh, you know, just as I said that uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is one of my favorite films. I think uh, there's three or four Kubrick films that fall onto my list of favorite films, and not just because they're great films, be- but because Kubrick himself is such an interesting figure. How important is Kubrick's work, do you think? Well, I think he, I mean, he's probably the best-known uh, English-language filmmaker or American filmmaker of the 20th century, um, and that's including Spielberg and Hitchcock and Scorsese. I think he's the guy who made art films uh, in, the, in, the, in the English language. I mean, you had your Ingmar Bergman, Federico Fellini. Like, there's a lot of great cinematic talents, but a lot of them weren't working out of out of the U.S., but Kubrick, he was American. He worked mostly in England in the last years of his life, but uh, he brought to big-budget Hollywood studio films the same kind of art house sensibility that you would have seen in a lot of lower-budget uh, European movies. So he was certainly a visionary, certainly original, um, and, of course, his movies, just about all of them, have become indelible parts of popular culture. Even if you don't know... Stanley Kubrick or haven't seen the movies, you probably recognize a lot of the images from them, whether it's 
uh, Slim Pickens riding the bomb in right. Dr. Strange Love, or uh, Alex and the Droogs in A Clockwork Orange, uh, you know, little Danny Torrance going around the halls in The Shining, uh, you know, Moon, Watch, Moon Watcher in 2001 throwing the bone and it becoming a spaceship. We all know those images, whether or not we quite connect them to Stanley Kubrick, but those were all the product of one guy. So, yeah, it's, it's a pretty immense legacy. Uh, there are a couple films that come to mind when we start talking about uh, conspiracy theories and ideas associated with his work. But before we get into them, we know that Kubrick has some of this attached to him. But was he a cons- uh, was he a controversial figure at all as an individual? Was he a political activist? Did he do anything in his personal life that might tip his uh, hand a little bit to the fact that these conspiracy ideas uh, circle around his films? No, I think, I mean, having written about him and read up in his biography, he was a pretty, he was more actually ordinary than a lot of people think. He was certainly kind of reclusive. He didn't part, he didn't live in Hollywood. He didn't go to awards shows. He wasn't really a celebrity. He was very low key that way. But he was just a very well read guy. He, he really delved into the material of whatever films he was working on. So if he was working about, a film about space. He learned everything that there was going on at the time in the 60s of the space race and that sort of technology. When he was working on Dr. Strangelove, he read everything he could about nuclear deterrence and uh, the Cold War. So when he was working on The Shining, he read everything about gothic fiction and horror novels. So he was a very smart guy. Uh, I don't think he, he had any blatant political biases one way or the other. I think he, he grew up in the mid middle of the 20th century. He was a good of American, thoughtful, middle-of-the-road person, a moderate. I mean, you can see there was a lot of anti-war messages in sure. Metal Jacket, in Dr. Strangelove. He was a humanist, basically. Clockwork Orange is about the power of the state and technology to render a, an ordinary person into a, an automaton, like as you were mentioning before, just based on sort of uh, aversion therapy or some kind of mental mental training so he was a humanist in that sense but he wasn't you know one way blatantly left or right in his beliefs um when did the let's talk specifically about um the controversy surrounding the idea that the moon landings may have been faked and kubrick may have had something to do with providing the footage that ultimately was uh, sold as being footage of men walking on the moon effectively uh, when did those ideas start to surface was was it contemporary was did it happen when those images were first seen or did this come later well 2001 came out in 1968 which was a year before the Neil Armstrong moon landing and of course at the time those were pioneering special effects that's right and Kubrick invested a lot of his time like half the budget or more than half the budget of that movie was put into the special effects and even people who were kind of didn't get it or found it too long or, or, or too dry everyone acknowledged that those special effects were you know, the most realistic spectacular depictions of space travel that anyone had ever seen. And they still hold up pretty well today. I mean, they're, they're made with analog, they're made with miniatures, not with the CGI that we would use today, but they still look pretty believable. For, and they do have uh, characters and objects landing on the moon, and it looks pretty realistic. So I think shortly after the moon landing, with all the, the real moon landing, with all the expense that went into it, I, I think there was at the fringes of discourse, some thought that because only 
two or three astronauts were allegedly there at the time. Maybe it was something that was made in a, a studio just to sort of buy off the public into believing that the, all this effort and all this money had turned out to be successful. And maybe secretly it wasn't, but they we were being plied with some sort of uh, fake image of it just to convince us that it was all worthwhile. And, of course, you've probably seen the movie, I think it was 1978, Capricorn 1. Oh, I just, it's, it's funny you mention that because I saw it, I don't know, as a kid or as a, as a, as a young adult, and uh, I just saw it on, uh, it was on HBO Max, and the other night I watched it again for the first time probably in 30 years, um, and fondly I watched it and, and, and was thinking about all these things that we're talking about tonight because uh, that's kind of the premise of the film. Yeah, I think in that case they were supposedly going to Mars. To Mars, that's right. Once, once the, the for some reason the 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 ship itself was defective, so they couldn't go. So they hustled the astronauts out to this studio out in the desert and recreated the Martian landing and broadcast that to the world. So all all the public thought, "Oh, great, we've gone to Mars," and then they were going to somehow have the astronauts killed off at the end of the movie, so they wouldn't be able to tell the story, and that it all hinges on them getting out to to reveal the truth that it was all a big fake. So I think that gave some impetus to the Kubrick legend. And just to be clear, uh, people did actually go to the moon and <laughs> did walk around up there. Uh, Stanley Kubrick is a great filmmaker, and the, the space depictions in 2001 are, like I say, really ahead of their time and, and really impressive to watch. But there's there's just no way that something like that could have been pulled off and not be revealed. It takes a lot of takes a lot of people to make it 2001, and the thought that all 100 or 200, 300 people involved in that or more, that in the intervening years one of them wouldn't have come clean, is just it's not realistic to think that. Yeah. I, Let I, alone I, all the number of people in the U.S. space program, which is, must be tens of thousands of people, to think right. that they're all somehow in on the big fake job. That's right. One of the ideas is not that we didn't go, but that there was such a fear of disaster playing out on live TV that they that the NASA and the federal government didn't want to show live images. So instead they they, you know, while it was happening, they actually staged it somewhere else so they could control it so that they, you know, we wouldn't see a lander blowing up and killing three astronauts or whatever, you know, possible uh, disasters uh, could have happened there. That's one of the ideas too. Right. But, I mean, again, with so many of these conspiracy theories, there's a kind of logic to them that says that the conspiracy was the only thing that could have pulled it off, that, as you say, let's say they, they didn't want to have the public see a live demonstration of, of a disaster happening. So, But, of course, we've seen all kinds of things happen, disasters happen live. We saw uh, the Space Shuttle Challenger blow up on live TV. That's right. Now, if they fake the moon landing in order to, in, to forestall the possibility that something was going to go wrong and everyone would see it live, well, why didn't they fake the, the, the Space Shuttle Challenger getting successfully off into space? How come that slipped under their web, whereas they covered up the moon landing? Again, it's just logically it doesn't... It, it, it seems to make sense in hindsight, but when you think about the logic of it, uh, there's too many holes in the plot. Of course, um, later on, uh, Kubrick made the film The Shining, another one that's on my list of my favorite films. That was 1980. Mm -hmm. Fantastic movie, whether you're a horror fan or not. It's just creepy as hell. Um, yeah. 
But that film was said to have contained a lot of clues whereby supposedly uh, Kubrick was telling people through coded messages in that film that, yes, in fact, he was involved in a conspiracy in this moon landing hoax. And um, here's some subtle hints for anybody who's looking for them to tell the story. It's it's a good it's a right. great it's a great way to watch the film because it's interesting. Um, but what do you think of all that? Well, I think I think that's sort of something that we've projected on the film itself. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking of is that the little boy Danny is wearing a shirt that has a spaceship on it, or it says Apollo Eleven. It's, it's a little kid's shirt, and somehow that's given a hint. But again, these are all like retrospectives that we can see something that fits the thesis we already have. So if we're looking for it, we'll find those patterns. Those patterns, And it's just like, as I wrote in one of my other books, Here's to My Sweet Satan, you can always find uh, hidden messages if you play the record backwards. Right. If you know that, if you believe that there's a message there, you're going to hear it. And if you believe that Kubrick was putting clues in his movies, well, you'll find those clues. Um, but it's not. It's sort of like listening to uh, Dark Side of the Moon while watching The Wizard of Oz. If you already know the pattern that you're going to find, you will find it there. But I don't think there's any logical way or any practical way that he could have done it and think that this was somehow going to spill the beans, but he was going to do it in a subtle way. I mean, if he wanted to really tell people, I'm sure Kubrick would have come clean directly and said, I had this. I was part of this huge plot. Uh, to leave it up to just a few clues and hope that people would get the clues just doesn't seem to really make hold water as an idea. And there's a documentary called uh, I think it's Room Two Thirty Seven. Two Thirty Seven. Yeah, which kind of goes through these these ideas and presents them. And I I've watched it a few years ago, and I remember thinking on a few of them, oh, that's really cool. Then I thought, uh, but these are this is a stretch. That's a real stretch. Right. I mean, it's very entertaining to come up with this stuff as long as it's harmless and you're not taking right. it too far. I think right. it shows the inventiveness of our own minds and how well how much we can get out of uh, a great film or great piece of music or anything like that. I think that's fine. The human mind is very uh, original that way, and we can be really creative. But once you start actually applying these to daily life and thinking that this is a real reflection of reality, then you're getting beyond just uh, using your imagination to come up with an interesting idea, and then you're it's becoming a little bit delusional at that level. I think that's what the Room 237 implies, that if you can get this much out of one, a single film, um, it's a testament to the originality and the, the the creativity, the genius that you can find in a movie like The Shining. That's great, but it can be taken too far. Uh, I think where it went too far for me in that in, in Room Two Thirty Seven is they did a and one of the segments was something about the the scene where a. Um, Jack is at the typewriter. I'm not sure if he's typing, you know, I'll work and no play that scene or what, but he's at the typewriter and they show a couple different angles of him. And in one shot, there's a chair behind the chair him. is gone. Yeah. And yeah. then the other shot, the chair. I'm like, what is that? There's no message there. That's a little silly. Right, right. I mean, so anything that's an accident yeah. or, and <laughs> this just... is something I raised in uh, Dumbing Down Descent too. Like, you can come up with a conspiracy based on things that are just random accidents. And in that case, it was a continuity glitch, like right. someone in the set forgot to put the chair there. Um, it's, you know, there's no meaning to it, there's, and life is full of random events like that. But 
if you're looking at it in hindsight and if you've got plenty of time to study it and restudy it and look over it again, sure, you can come up with a recurring pattern that seems to reinforce the beliefs that you already have. But we do have to acknowledge that life is actually pretty random. And, and even the real life that we already know, like two years ago, would you have predicted a big global pandemic was on the way? Yeah, I sure couldn't have. Right, right. Yeah, so if that missing chair is uh, indicates that there's a moon landing conspiracy in some fashion, then Plan 9 from Outer Space by Ed Wood must be <laughs> the blueprint to the complete UFO mystery that we've all been scratching our heads Sure, yeah, why not? Years, right? <laughs> Who's to argue against that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can. it shows how... Uh, what a good imagination can do if it's let loose. In the, in the few minutes we have left, I want to talk about your, your newest book, um, Taking Care of Business, A History of Working People's Rock and Roll. What's working people's rock and roll? Well, the examples in that book I've got are bands like uh, CCR, Leonard Skinner, ACDC, Bruce Springsteen. Now, if you think of a lot of those artists um, and some of those classic songs, there is this kind of subgenre of rock, and I'm a rock fan. I like all kinds of music. I'm a jazz fan, blues, classical. But there is a subgenre of that type of rock and roll that seems to appeal to a lot of the mainstream, middle American, middle Canadian, sort of, uh, I would almost want to say the angry white male demographic or the, the blue-collar demographic. The A lot of people who have been kind of disenfranchised by the last 30, 40 years of economic slowdown and, uh, you know, factory shutdown, the Rust Belt, the growth, the, the Brexit. Uh, so many things have happened politically and economically in our world that there's a kind of soundtrack that seems to go with that. We think of, you know, Bruce Springsteen singing about people being laid off or John Mellencamp singing about the farm crisis in the U.S., uh, Leonard Skinner singing Sweet Home Alabama, or ACDC singing about Highway to Hell and Girls Got Rhythm, there's there's a kind of a particular population that seems to respond to that music and whom that music really speaks for, that uh, it's different from punk rock or from disco or from folk rock. There's a real audience for that. These are the arena rock people. The people are into Ted Nugent. And just so we're clear, the book is, is well in favor of all that those those artists. I'm a fan but it does seem to reflect a, a certain political and social dynamic that I think is pretty prominent nowadays. So I wanted to tie in an appreciation of the music with a, a broader history of you know, how, how rock and roll has gone from something we think of as rebellious and down with the system, and now it's become almost like a, a traditionalist genre. Like A lot of older guys like rock and roll. A lot of... Uh, you know, unrepentant Southerners like Leonard Skinner or ZZ Top or the Allman Brothers. So there's a different there's a different audience there. It's not just hippies and punk rockers and juvenile delinquents. It's a lot of kind of uh, straight ahead blue collar lunch bucket type people. That's so, their music. Yeah. So I, I think you answered this question already, but I just want to I want to pull it out of the the larger context of the answer you just gave. Is it the lyrics that makes it this, or is it the sound? Um, or is it where the artists themselves grew up and how they grew up? What, what defines the category? Well, it's a bit of all of that. Yeah, in some cases it's the lyrics. There are some lyrics that are definitely saying, you know, we're 
fighting against the system and I'm an independent, I'm born to run, right. that type of thing. In some cases, it's the music. It's just that high-energy, unpretentious guitar boogie, like classic Ted Nugent music um, or Aerosmith. Um, and in some cases, it's like they're the roots of the artists themselves, whether it's Mellencamp coming from the farm farm areas or uh, even Black Sabbath coming from industrial England where everything was, all the factories were shutting down, or Leonard Skinner and ZZ Top come from the U.S. South, which is becoming its own kind of independent entity and more and more over the years as the kind of cultural center of the U.S. has gone from the Rust Belt states down to the South and the West. Um, it can be a bit of everything, and it, it's, you know, I won't, I won't claim that there's an absolute definition of what this music is or, or who fits in and who doesn't, but we kind of know it when we hear it. Like Bob Seger's another example, a guy from Detroit singing about making Thunderbirds and uh, you know, turn the page, going across the landscape of middle America. We're an American band, Grand Funk Railroad, all these songs that we kind of know speak to a certain type of audience and for whether it's what they're singing about how the music sounds, or what we know about the character of the the artists themselves. Even a band like ACDC from Australia, some of those classic anthems are all about, you know, guys going out and having a good time. And and there's a lot of other music that's not about that. So ACDC speaks for that sort of the young the young twenty something male going to a strip bar in all of us. And that's that's not for everyone. So that's a particular audience that I think the music really speaks to. And I wanted to isolate that and sort of celebrate that at the same time. Can an artist that might not fall into those parameters might, might be kind of an outsider to this, the genre that we're talking about still have a song that falls in. And I'm thinking specifically of like Billy Joel, I wouldn't put him into that category, although he was a really blue collar musician. However, you know, the song Allentown <laughs> comes to mind sure. as being a yeah, song that yeah, really I sings I about that one things. in the book and he's, he's got a few, there's a few, sources. It, it, there's kind of a gray area. Some artists will have an individual song or an individual album that really seems to speak to a certain generation, a certain demographic, people of a certain background. For sure, it, it, it can be a lot of individual uh, pieces or individual one hit that someone had. So for sure, Allentown is, is right up there, that type of music that is sort of an anthem of a particular population. And we, we, you and I both know and probably lament over the fact that uh, popular music has taken some very, very strange turns over the last 10 years, maybe 15. Um, but is yeah. there anything being produced like this category that we're talking about today in today's music? Well, the one thing I've, uh, I don't, in the book, I don't go too far into the modern era, but I do think of some people like uh, Kid Rock, for example, who okay. does have that kind of mix of, the the rap sound, but yet some of the uh, you know suburban Detroit attitude. He's singing about and he's combining, or even I think sampling some of the chords from Sweet Home Alabama That's against right. his own beat. So he's kind of appealing to that same audience or the children of that original Leonard Skinner audience and updating the sound a little bit for them. So, and I, I'm not a diehard Kid Rock fan by any means, but you can see that there's a tradition there that's extending from CCR, Leonard Skinner, to Kid Rock. It's appealing to the same strain of people coming from the same part of the country, listening to the same 
style of music and, and getting the same message from it, maybe. Again, the book is called Taking Care of Business, A History of Working People's Rock and Roll. Where can people find that book and your other books, George? They're all on Amazon.com. Uh, I think uh, the new one, Taking Care of Business, might be at Barnes & Noble. I don't know about how, if people are still able to get into a Barnes & Noble these days, but the one, but I'm definitely online. You can go to Amazon.com or Amazon.ca in Canada. Wherever you live, they are uh, available. It won't take a won't take long to find them online. And they're uh, taking care of business has just come out. The previous one, Here's to My Sweet Satan, came out about five years ago, but you'll find them out there. And uh, your weekly blog can be found at georgecaseblog.wordpress.com. Is there any other spots that people can go to follow you, or is that the best place? That's the best one, and I try to update that every week. I've got a new short essay up there, so you can always find out my latest thoughts on they're not always about news or the latest some breaking story but there's some opinion on something that's current generally so uh yeah and it's a little quick read nothing too impactful but i think spend five minutes you'll get some fresh ideas there george this has been a great discussion I had a lot of fun it was informative and i really appreciate you coming back on the program this was a great night hey good to talk to you man and, and anytime Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.